You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda. And this is Prashant Parmeswaran from Washington, D.C. Hey, Prashant. How are you doing today? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. So uh, President Donald Trump is back from Asia. He has wrapped up his first trip to the region. We, on the last episode of this podcast, covered part one, which looked at his time in Tokyo and Seoul, the two big Northeast Asian allies of the United States, where I think we had a fairly sanguine assessment overall uh, that he was mostly successful in the reassurance task, even if there were a few moments of strange optics. Um, but on this episode, let's uh, get to the rest of the trip, uh, which I think is also a mixed bag. Um, he went to China, where he met with Chinese President Xi Jinping, discussed a range of uh, regional, bilateral, and global issues. From there, he traveled to Vietnam, where he participated in the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit, APEC, and um, delivered a major speech on the theme of a free and open Indo-Pacific, which we've hinted at previously on this podcast. Mm -hmm. And he attended a bilateral summit with the Vietnamese. Um, and following that, he ended up uh, in Manila for the ASEAN summit. ASEAN was celebrating its 50th anniversary this year, the 40th anniversary of U.S.-ASEAN ties. And uh, he also had a bilateral meeting with President Rodrigo Duterte. And at the end of the day, he did not end up staying for the plenary session of the East Asia Summit after uh, things ran behind schedule. And he ended up leaving Asia slightly earlier. Um, so there's a lot to talk about um, here. Uh, and I'll also add that we'll also maybe talk a bit about the much discussed a meeting of the quadrilateral, which I think is getting interest in some countries more than others. Uh, certainly India is giving quite a bit of attention to this. It was front page, uh, front page headlines after this meeting. But uh, let's start off in China, Prashant. Um, this was obviously a, a highly anticipated stop on this trip. Um, the U.S.-China relationship continues to remain the most important bilateral uh, in many ways for the United States in the Asia-Pacific, just given the uncertainties involved and as China becomes increasingly ambitious and less shy about showing its ambition, certainly after the 19th Party Congress, that's um, more than apparent given uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping's clarity about where China's uh, headed in the world. Um, but I wanted to sort of get your 30,000-foot review of, of his trip in China. How, um, how well do you think Trump did in terms of uh, not only pursuing U.S. interests, but also just uh, generally uh, dealing with um, you know some of the more difficult questions when it comes to the relationship with China, including North Korea, um, South China Sea, the regional security architecture. Um, how do you think Trump did in Beijing? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you know, going back to the theme that we did last, the last podcast we talked about, which is you know, expectations for this trip overall um, were were quite low, um, and I think that applies on the China trip as well because you you had a position where uh, President Trump was going to China with his domestic uh, position quite weakened and uncertain, and also a lot of U.S. policy in the Asia Pacific was still kind of being built, whereas Xi Jinping was coming out from a party congress having consolidated his power, and China's uh, initiatives in the Asia-Pacific with respect to One Belt, One Road, a lot of that architecture has already been built and is still there. So you, he did have that dynamic to negotiate. Not many people were, were hoping, for, hoping for much in terms of substance, and we didn't get a lot of that. Uh, we saw them talk about North Korea, we saw them mention uh, some stuff in the way of trade and, and sort of the regional and global order, but not any significance in time in terms of specifics. And I would say that 
would kind of be the worry for the rest of the Asian states who are looking at this, because I think when people were looking at the trip initially, they were worried that the Chinese were trying to woo Trump with this sort of state plus visit and that he might sort of fall for that. And we could see more of this sort of U.S. China first uh, Asia policy, right, mm -hmm. where Trump would be kind of softer on China and not really sort of built out or seek to seek to alienate Beijing. I don't know if we can say for certain whether that's what happened, but I think those fears and uncertainties are still there because we haven't had much of the substance of U.S. policy built out. I think what some folks are hoping is that we will see a stronger and tougher U.S. policy once he gets back and we see this administration become more of a traditional Republican administration that's tough on security issues. But we haven't seen that to date yet. So still a lot of uncertainty, I think, on the China question. And, and as we've talked about before, for Southeast Asian countries and other Asian states, they're really looking to the U.S.-China relationship to see what the indications are there to then see what are the implications for them. So the fact that we have uncertainty on this, even if though we're still early in the administration, I think remains a point of concern. Right. I think you I think you pinpointed uh, an important point that stuck out from this trip, which is that anxiety among um, middle powers in Asia, but also smaller states uh, in Southeast Asia about that so-called, you know, China first approach to Asia. The the old idea of a G2 where great power diplomacy between the United States and China ends up dwarfing all other priorities in Asia. And with Trump, it's always been an open question. You've had this struggle inside the administration between the doves and the hawks when it comes to China. And increasingly, it looks as if the doves are um, at least maintaining greater numbers at higher levels of the administration. Certainly, Trump tends to trust many of the doves that are still in the administration, most notable probably being, uh, you know, his uh, son-in-law and daughter, Jared Kushner, Ivanka Trump, who have quite a good rapport with uh, China. And, um, you know, someone like Peter Navarro, who is probably the biggest talk in the, in the administration, he was actually left back in D.C. for this trip. Um, and I think you saw a lot of that play out in um, along um, with uh, with what you know, Trump ended up actually saying. I mean, his remarks on trade, which you briefly alluded to, I thought were illuminating. You know, I mean, he uh, he he did point out the massive trade deficit that the United States has with China, but the attribution for that uh, deficit was interesting. Um, he did not, you know, he he specifically said, "I don't blame China." I mean, any country would would take advantage of this. Um, and you know, he might have been right in that sense, but then he, uh, you know, in Beijing, uh, in the Great Hall of the People, he blames his predecessors for allowing China. Uh, to take advantage of the United States, almost as if he was back just uh, in the United States at a campaign rally. Um, the optics of that, uh, I have to say, you know, weren't great, especially when you consider the broader message on multilateral, robust, liberalized trade that Trump delivered um, in, in other destinations on this trip, including in Vietnam. Um, but definitely, I mean, I think the Chinese succeeded in managing the optics of this trip as uh, one, you know, again, demonstrating a good personal relationship between Xi and Trump. And I think Trump really played that up. I mean, um, reportedly on Air Force One, he told reporters that he felt respected by Xi and he will always value a relationship built on respect more than a relationship built on friendship. And I don't know if that was an, a conscious attempt by Trump to maybe take a snide stab at, you know, Abe and Moon, who seem to be really playing up the friendship angle. You know, Abe has been really trying to develop that interpersonal relationship, the golfing and everything. But uh, with right. Xi, it seems like, you know, Trump's really been reciprocating. And also, you know, I mean, this is going to sound ridiculous, but in 2017, it's really an important mode of analysis. I mean, he changed his cover photo on Twitter after he uh, left China to show, you know, 
him and Xi Jinping and Melania Trump and Peng Li Wen, you know, you know, standing there. He didn't do that for Abe and Moon. I thought the optics of that again were were somewhat notable. Um, I mean, overall, it does seem that you know Trump has taken a liking to Xi Jinping. He he sees a leader uh, who appears to be strong. I mean, he's been congratulating him on Twitter. So I think that that unease around this idea of a G two or a China first approach to Asia. Um, isn't going to be entirely um, evaporated after this trip. If anything, it's going to be more of a concern, I think, heading into 2018. But again, you know, I mean, I, I wrote about this um, for the South China Morning Post. Um, and, you know, I think there is really a possibility that bureaucratic forces, and I think there's evidence of this, you know, especially the National Security Council level um, and elsewhere in the White House, um, might ultimately succeed in shifting the tide of U.S. policy. That even if at the presidential level, she and Trump maintain a good rapport, U.S. policy may finally come to start, um, you know, hitting on some of those more difficult questions that matter to this administration, including the trade deficit, including the South China Sea. Um, so, yeah, um, shall we uh, move on now to the next destination on this trip, uh, which was uh, Vietnam? So, yeah, so I guess let's start by talking about the APEC summit. Um, the minute I heard that Trump would be going to an APEC summit, I was already worried because I think um, everything that Trump has embodied, you know, when it comes to um, international economics and trade is essentially the antithesis of what APEC stands for. Uh, APEC is a, you know, it's a body for consultation on, on free and liberalized trade in the Asia-Pacific region, which is something that Trump has explicitly rejected. Um, and, you know, he took the opportunity to, again, make this clear at APEC. Um, but Prashant, you know, uh, I do want to talk about this speech that we alluded to earlier on this podcast and in previous episodes uh, where Trump addressed finally this theme of the free and open Indo-Pacific, which we've heard a bit about from um, from Secretary of State Rex Tillerson. But um, I wanted to get your reaction to that speech. What you um, what'd you make of it? Yeah, I, I think um, the, the speech overall, um, you know, if, if you watch the delivery and then you read it, um, it seems at first glance to be almost schizophrenic. Um, you know, the, the beginning of it talks about the history of U.S. engagement with Asia and longstanding commitment, and it could have been written by, you know, any administration because it looks at the historical broad approach to U.S. policy, and U.S.-Asia policy is pretty bipartisan on, on, on that score. But then you, you had the second part of the speech, which then devolved into this America first rhetoric particularly focused on trade and very narrowly on the problems and challenges of U.S. policy. And then I think that, you know, some folks who had uh, expected that this might be some kind of broad Asia-Pacific vision that would also include things like security, the, the rules-based order, were expecting Trump to maybe delve into other aspects of policy, but then the speech just ended. And I, <laughs> and I think some, some, some people were a bit concerned as to why there was no resolution between those two aspects. And I think if you take that uh, and the presentation of the speech as sort of a, an indicator for what policy is, which I think a lot of people in Asia are doing, you don't get a clear sense of where this administration is coming out yet, you know, in terms of this resolution between, uh, you know, Asia being the the priority for the United States, but then also, you know, this America first vision that still uh, sort of dominates the discussion. I also think, I mean, by not including this and making this a more wide ranging speech, and I understand, I mean, this is an APEC gathering, it did make it look more jarring because if you look at the security side, as we've discussed before, there's a lot more continuity there mm -hmm. with respect to some of the Obama administration policies. But because the, the focus was on trade and it was APEC, the contradiction there was quite glaring. So I thought in terms of the optics, that was really the problem that he was 
uh, grappling with in the speech. I, you know, I don't think that people were expecting anything significantly different. And he was a little bit conciliatory, at least to Vietnam, the host nation. And the Vietnamese were very worried, um, understandably, when Trump was going to come in because they were wondering what he was going to say. So at least on Vietnam, I think he acknowledged the fact that Vietnam had developed, had been very successful, prosperous. And the bilateral meeting with the Vietnamese uh, went pretty well. A lot of the statement was similar to the statement that was issued when the Vietnamese prime minister came over here. So not a lot of substantive changes again. But I thought um, that was what stuck out to most people, the sort of mm-hmm. contradictions in the speech. Well, there was that great uh, sales pitch on missile defense to Vietnam, which I found incredible. I mean, you look at in 2016, you know, you have the yep. lifting of the lethal arms embargo. And then a year later, you have a U.S. president pitching, you know, Patriot missile defense systems to the Vietnamese. Uh, who could have who could have imagined that a year ago? But here we are. Um on on the speech, Prashant, I think uh, I think you're absolutely right about that contradiction. Um, I had kind of you know I think I raised this on a um, a few podcasts ago when we were talking about this uh, free and open Indo-Pacific idea briefly. But I'd also you know I'd almost wondered if this was going to be the opportunity for the United States to unveil something of a concerted strategy. Um, repudiating one belt, one road. Uh, we've seen sort of hints of that come out from the administration, uh, Mattis being the most explicit during a congressional testimony when he said, you know, Asia has plenty of room for many belts and many roads. One country shouldn't be able to say one belt, one road, which was by far the most explicit. Tillerson, again, hit on that a bit in his speech about India policy in D.C. in October. Um, Trump, I mean, he didn't really get to it in the speech. I mean, he did uh, He did actually use the expression many roads uh, right towards the end, which I thought was an interesting nod towards this idea. Um, but really, I mean, I think when you look at, you know, the raison d'etre for APEC and you have this speech being given to a group of APEC CEOs, it really couldn't be more jarring. Um, and, you know, a lot of, I think it is slightly overplayed, this headline you're seeing that, you know, everything Trump did on the Asia trip was a massive gift to China when it comes to regional leadership. I mean, no, I think, you know, people are maybe being a little bit too credulous and taking Chinese rhetoric um, at face value instead of looking at Chinese actions in the region, certainly. Um, but I think, you know, when it comes to that APEC speech, uh, it's really it's really a jarring difference um, with uh, especially the previous administration. You know, we talked about the pivot and the rebalance quite a bit, and it was always um, worth stating that the pivot was never just about a, um, you know, rebalancing military forces to Asia. It was always... Um, the second leg of the pivot, so to speak, was always the economic angle, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which obviously we all know how that uh, ended up. And actually, that reminds me, you know, I mean, if anything, uh, if one of the most significant events during this Asia trip was the uh, supposed deal on, uh, in principle, on uh, the TPP-11, the the fate of that ag- agreement without the United States, with the idea being that the U.S. might one day end up changing course and joining the agreement. Um, but really, I mean, uh, everything we see here, it's, it's really, you know, there is a lot of continuity uh, on the military side, as you said, but really the economic side is, is so different. And I think to a lot of Asian states, it does look like a form of retrenchment because at the end of the day, I mean, there is demand in Asia for integration, connectivity, trade liberalization, multilateral trade deals. Um, and I think that's something that this administration simply um, is unwilling to accept at this point. Um, well, let's, you know, take this down a little bit now to Manila and the Philippines, the last uh, destination on Trump's trip. And uh, this, uh, obviously, Manila was the site of quite a bit of activity. We had the entire range of ASEAN uh, summits, the bilaterals on the sidelines, the trilaterals on the sidelines, and of course, uh, the quadrilateral on the sideline this year between the United States, Japan, Australia, and India, the four um democracies with uh, enduring interests in the regional rules-based order in Asia. And we had um, Trump's bilateral meeting with Duterte, the long-anticipated meeting of the two strongmen. 
and uh, of course the East Asia summit. Um, and uh, Trump ended up leaving the plenary session. He wasn't in attendance, but we did actually get a glimpse at his prepared remarks, which I thought were interesting. Um, uh, especially it included a, a bit on the South China Sea, which was something that had been missing in the, the presidential rhetoric throughout the trip. So that was unfortunate. It would have been an opportunity for the administration to at least show that the South China Sea still commanded U.S. attention at the highest levels of government, especially as we've seen, you know, an expanded freedom of navigation operation tempo at the hands of Pacific Command. But just having the White House give some imprimatur to um to those operations would have been a positive, in my opinion. Um, yep. But let's uh, let's take a step back to the ASEAN stuff. Uh, so you're the ASEAN guy. Give us a sense of how you thought everything went down. Yeah, so I, I think with, with the ASEAN stuff, you touched on this with the Vietnam visit too. Um, it's really important for us to emphasize to listeners too that while Trump and, and his visit was important, there's a lot of stuff that's going on in the region that doesn't necessarily involve the United States. And I think that was very much... Uh, a center of activity there too. TPP 11 was was a great example of that, as you pointed out. But also, you know, it, it's the 20th anniversary of ASEAN plus three. Um, so you had the ASEAN nations with China, South Korea, and Japan uh, do meetings on that to commemorate that anniversary. So that's sort of a form of regional economic integration as well. Um, you had the ASEAN states among themselves issue a couple of declarations on cyber and terrorism, which are kind of the two main threats uh, now in the region that are getting greater focus. So that was uh, on the on the ASEAN side. You know, I, I do think on, on Trump and, and Duterte, which which kind of was eventually the unsurprisingly the big awaited summit meeting that people have been talking about, um, you know, there uh, we mentioned this in, in the last episode, too. I mean, this the state of the U.S.-Philippine relationship was already quite good even before Trump made the visit. In fact, officials on both sides were worried about the implications of both leaders meeting because there might be an off-the-cuff remark that could, you know, sort of derail the cooperation that was already ongoing. You know, both leaders managed to avoid that, and the joint statement was fairly boilerplate. A lot of the things that we expected that were happening already were enshrined in them. No surprises there. But there was that remark that Duterte made about journalists, you know, being spies and right. Trump sort of sort of chuckling. And unfortunately, you know, that, um, as many people feared, did end up forming part of the headline and the narrative of the visit, which is that, you know, Trump really doesn't care about human rights and given what's going on in the Philippines. Um, and, you know, also, by the way, human rights and democracy were not a major focus of the trip. And I think that's a lot of the negative press coverage that came out of the Philippine visit. But the, the relationship between the two leaders, um, it remains to be good. I mean, they had a phone call. It was, you know, a bit controversial in terms of the details that Trump disclosed during that phone call. But even even the bilateral meeting, I mean, the, the they have a natural relationship in terms of being very frank, straightforward, keeping meetings short keeping things crisp and then leaving uh, their bureaucrats at the working level to sort things out. And that uh, suits the bureaucrats just fine, too. So Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and also, you know, the divergent reports between uh, Malakanyang and the White House on human rights, who said what? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. It was really just a, uh, yeah, um, I think, I think, I mean, it really, I think, punched up the normative angle to the whole visit. Um, I mean, really... Um, it was it was noticeable that, uh, you know, I mean, again, in China, I think a lot of um, activists have been hoping that the United States would make a case on behalf of, for uh, you know, uh, deceased Nobel laureate uh, Liu Xiaobo on, on behalf of his widow. Um, but, end, you know, Trump at the end of the day ended up making the case for a few um, 
uh, UCLA basketball players, I believe, who had been uh, arrested for uh, shoplifting in China. I mean, it just made the, um, I think it just highlighted to me at least, just the the missing normative angle uh, that I think, you know, um, it, it's not always welcome when the United States goes abroad and, and you know, is, is seen as lecturing on human rights. And certainly in Southeast Asia, it's been a sore point in the past. Um, but I think at, uh, at, at this moment, it would have been um, certainly a, a welcome development. Um, and, you know, you did have contrasts. You had, for example, a Canadian Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, making uh, his case on, uh, on behalf of the Rohingya, for example. Um, but, but I think, you know, uh, that episode with Duterte did um, punch that up a bit in the headlines, I thought. Yeah, and also, I mean, the, to your point about the South China Sea, I mean, you did see, at least rhetorically, the sort of movement to uh, a code of conduct. And, uh, you know, the, the, the Chinese and the ASEAN states did sign this sort of declaration about environmental management for the next decade. So I, I think the Chinese perceive, too, that um, with the Americans not having gotten their act together, uh, they need to at least appear like uh, they're managing this issue well, even if they get gains on the economic side, like one belt, one road, just so that then dampens the case for why the United States should be more interventionist on this question. The Chinese can say we're managing that well. So that, I, I think, is another trend that, that's worth monitoring on the South China Sea. I mean, it, it, it isn't much, as we've discussed before, so many problems with this, this so-called uh, you know, framework for the code of conduct. And you know, the real issue is really going to be what Chinese intentions and actions are going to be in the South China Sea, and those are really worrying. But I do think that the Chinese are still making this sort of charm offensive push Mm-hmm. Uh, with ASEAN states and and that with Singapore's chairmanship next year is going to be interesting as well because they have to manage this next year. Yeah, absolutely. And then there was that weird aside from Trump that he would mediate the South China Sea, <laughs> which I think yeah. uh, you know it was a good thing that people didn't make too much of that because I really think that that was just um, an off the cuff comment. Um, it's not a, um, as far as I understand, it's not any sort of considered policy position of the United States, which again remains fairly static with what the Obama administration ended up leaving office with. Uh, I don't think anybody really knows what the next step for the United States will be in the South China Sea, apart from a stepped-up pace of uh, freedom of navigation operations, which is what we've seen. Um, All right, you want to talk a bit about the Quad? Absolutely, yeah. Okay, let's talk about the Quad. Um, The Quad is interesting. It's something I actually uh, have spent... um, Actually, you know, I think I first came across the Quad um, almost eight or nine years ago, um, you know, mm-hmm. studying it in the context of the convergence between India and Japan. It's a fascinating idea. It was originally coined by uh, Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe during his first term in office back in 2006, 2007, when he was just in office for a year. He had to step down um, amid a personal sickness. But uh, it was an interesting um, idea. It was the idea that was that as a rising China appears on the horizon in the Asia Pacific, that the uh, three middle power democracies um Japan, Australia, and India would come together with the regional hegemon, the United States, also a democracy, to forge a like-minded forum. And it was really a forum. I think uh, uh, the Quad has been overstated. It is not an alliance. It is not any sort of well-defined organization with commitments. There is no, uh, you know, this isn't like the BRICS. There's no development bank. There's no capital being pooled together. And in fact, you know, I think it's really worth emphasizing that the meeting that took place that generated all these headlines um, on the sidelines of the ASEAN summit uh, took place at the working level. I mean, these were uh, you know senior diplomats, but again, this is below the level of ministers. Certainly, uh, we're a while away from a leader summit between the leaders of these four countries, I think. Um, and it, it was primarily, again, a result of Japanese initiative. Uh, Shinzo Abe, uh, after winning the SNAP election, um, thought that this would be a productive way to spend uh, you know this uh, this upcoming bout of symmetry in Asia. 
And this meeting that took place, uh, you know, there were a few themes that uh, all agreed on, really came down to this idea of preserving a free and open Indo-Pacific, um, a rules-based order in Asia, supporting freedom of navigation, opposing terrorism, opposing proliferation, expressing concern about North Korea, maritime security cooperation. But nobody really knows where the Quad is going at this point. Uh, I think the reconvening of the Quad sends a message. It suggests that these countries are indeed, again, like they were in 2006, 2007, concerned about the rise of China. Um, but there really isn't an answer yet to how they will, um, I don't want to say counter, because that, again, I think pushes this narrative that this is really a coming together of states to push back China, to reduce space for China. But really, I think they're, uh, you know, it, they indicated with this meeting that they stand for um, a, an alternative vision, uh, a status quoist vision. Um, but the problem is, I mean, uh, a lot of China's success has been in spite of the status quo. Uh, so mm -hmm. when these countries come together in the form of the Quad, they're not really proposing an alternative because the alternative that they are opposing is the status quo that a lot of these states have ultimately found less attractive than China's sort of no strings attached, uh, very alluring approach of simply offering up capital, uh, which may or may not be outlaid, but uh, certainly makes for good headlines for regional leaders when they're able to announce spectacular multi-billion dollar infrastructure deals. But again, you know, there is a lot of promise here. Um, and this and this is really a first step. I think that's worth emphasizing. Um, geopolitically, it may or may not be a game changer. It certainly won't lead to any sort of military alliance. I just don't think that the temperament is there, certainly not there in India or Australia. Japan, again, remains hamstrung by its constitutional limitations, and even Indo-Japanese military cooperation has been hard won over, over the past uh, decade or so. So that's sort of my take on the Quad. And I know, you know uh, you've know you also written about this um, trilateral, quadrilateral trend across Asia, and we've talked about it before, Prashant. Uh, what was your, what's your impression of this? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 think, I think you're right to, to caution about uh, making too much uh, out of it because it's still in the early stages. And also, as you correctly noted, you know, there is no real uh, formal infrastructure for the quad. Um, and anytime you, you get past uh, the bilateral stage, you move on to trilaterals and quadrilaterals, as you get on more members, there's always a risk that this is going to end up fracturing, right? Because you need the leaders to really put the impetus for this uh, broad coalition of states, but then you also need it to be sustained at the working level on a regular basis. And the way that strategic dynamics change in the Asia-Pacific, as well as leaders in the Asia-Pacific, it's really hard to get uh, that alignment between these countries. Um, I think we're definitely at that at that stage now where we could see more action on that. Um, but I, what has been interesting, though, is you know you're seeing at the official level and and folks have been cautioning about the fact that this can't only be about security issues. You know, so that a, a lot of the agenda that you mentioned, you know, nonproliferation, maritime security, and some of these challenges, um, those are the easy things to do. I mean, you could have a quad with an exercise schedule and these countries doing um, anything from humanitarian assistance and disaster relief exercises or maritime security. But you need to make sure that that's balanced to address this notion of a of free and open Indo-Pacific to also include things like, you know, in some of the trilaterals, they've talked about women's empowerment as being mm -hmm. one issue where they could work together on. Um, you know, on the economic side, how can you get financing involved? And you saw on, on Trump's Japan leg some initiation of that. But the problem is, you know, a lot of the stuff um, in terms of sharing common goals with democracies, these are things that they share in terms of a general commitment to. But when you get down to specific, it's really hard, right? Right. Um, 
the Indians, you know, are, are not known for uh, their chops on free trade, right? I mean, <laughs> putting it lightly. That's the, yeah, exactly. So, and and on democracy and human rights, the Japanese have a very different way about talking about that than the United States does, uh, or even India does. So, it, it's really tough to find that alignment to make sure that it's not only um, comfortable for all sides, but that it's broad-based enough to not be seen as only about China. Clearly, this is is partly about China and about the regional order, and that's fine. But making it broad-based enough to sustain multiple administrations for a long period of time, I think, is going to be uh, the interesting part of that. But I know, you know, both of us have been looking at the Quad for a long time now, and it's definitely exciting to see some movement on that front, especially early on in the Trump administration. Certainly very promising on that front. Absolutely. No, I think this idea that you uh, just discussed is, is super important. I mean, look, I mean, if we talk about actionable things that the Quad will do, I think the low-hanging fruit is to quadrilateralize Malabar, or maybe not even quadrilateralize, but just invite the Australian Navy to participate next year. I can totally see that happening. Yeah. Um, it's it's a it's a quick and easy deliverable. I think even the Indians are down to do it now after Doklam this summer. Um, in fact, I think a lot of the um, enthusiasm you've seen, especially in the Indian media, I mean, it was remarkable. I mean, you have a working-level meeting uh, on the sidelines of an ASEAN summit, and it's front-page news on almost every major Indian newspaper. I mean, there is great enthusiasm in New Delhi about this. And I think, you know, I mean, uh, the, the security deliverables, to me, again, do seem easier. It's it's that other side of the equation. It's how do you counter the Belt and Road um, that right. I think, uh, you know, these countries will have to do a little work to figure out, and they may ultimately decide that, uh, this will ultimately end up being about security. Um, um, all right, so to wrap this up, um, let's uh, just very briefly uh, you know, talk about the uh, East Asia Summit. Uh, and here, I guess we won't be talking about Trump much since uh, he didn't you know, attend the dinner, but ended up taking off a little bit early. Uh, did you manage to catch his, uh, his prepared remarks, which he shared with uh, reporters on Air Force One? Yep, I did. Yeah, that was interesting. Yeah, um, you, yeah it was, uh, you know, on the South China Sea, which I talked about a bit before, I mean, it really shows that there's been, you know, little policy movement. Um, it's been yep. uh, effectively static. On North Korea, it's interesting that, you know, the United States still pursues com comprehensive, um, a complete verifiable and total disarmament instead of irreversible. I don't know if that's a Trumpism again or a policy move. It's, it's appeared in his prepared remarks twice now. So part of me wonders that it's some sort of strange policy move, but I'm not sure exactly what it might mean. Um, but, you know, uh, there was this debate about Trump not attending EAS. Um, and EAS has, uh, you know, at least in the Obama years, came to symbolize one of the major ways the administration was showing that it would be a Pacific-oriented, Asia-first foreign policy team, um, thinking about this region uh, above sort of the Middle East where Americans had grown fatigued. Um, and, you know, for Trump to skip EAS, there's certainly... The optics of that, I think, are, again, not great, uh, especially in light of a lot of the mixed messaging we saw on this trip. Um, but, uh, you know, do you really think that this is um, as big of a deal as people are making it out to be? Or uh, or do you think that, you know, maybe this won't be the end of the world for the administration on Asia? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's some, somewhere in between. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, other presidents have missed EAS before. So this is not something that is, you know, out of the ordinary. But, you know, this is not an ordinary administration either. Um, so the fact that this is the, you know, Trump's first year in office, there are already questions about multilateralism. This is ASEAN's 50th anniversary, 40th anniversary of U.S.-ASEAN ties. And so much uncertainty already about the administration. And the fact that, you know, staying there would have been an extra 24 hours, not even, um, you know, that is a, a worrying sign. And, you know, you saw that play out uh, on the front pages. And certainly it, it's not very reassuring um, in that regard. Now, I don't 
I don't know if he stayed, whether it would have made much, um, you know, of a difference, because um, he stayed for for most of the gatherings. Most of it was in terms of the significance and substance that was accomplished. Um, but I do think, you know, that there there is this sense. I mean, the United States pushed quite hard after a debate in the Obama administration um, to get ASEAN to admit uh, the United States into the AES. There was a long, drawn-out process. Um, and the process of scheduling so that the president, U.S. president can be there um, is a significant process in and of itself. And the United States, under the later stages of the Obama administration, was making all this uh, effort to say that the EAS needed to be more action-oriented. And I think, you know, anytime you're trying to make changes to an organization, it helps to be there for all of its deliberations. And if you're not, that significantly undermines your message. Absolutely. Well, yeah. you know, I think my bottom line on this Asia trip is it could have been worse. <laughs> um, <laughs> it wasn't yeah. great. Um, it wasn't a total disaster. Um, important things that needed to be done, you know, for example, reassuring Seoul and Tokyo at a time of an unforeseen level of threat from North Korea, I think, went off you know, fairly well, as well as could be. Um, elsewhere, I think, you know, there was plenty of room for improvement, but nothing really appeared to fall off a cliff. I think uh, a lot of this is still going to be, you know, maybe regarded in a few years' time as the United States sort of sh shooting itself in the foot, especially when it comes to multilateral trade and TPP um, and a few things like that. But, but, you know, I think the bottom line is that things could have gone a lot worse. What about yours? Yeah, and the North and the North Koreans didn't launch a missile, so you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you? Uh, is that is that your take too, or do you have a a variation? Yeah, I mean, I I think that definitely the case. I I think you could argue that there were a number of missed opportunities um, for the visit. I think one was, um, and I think maybe falsely so, people in the region were expecting a more sort of comprehensive rollout of a strategy. Um, but the fact is, as you know. You and I have talked about this before. You, you have so little senior officials confirmed uh, in the Obama in the Trump administration to carry out actual policy, um, and the fact that you know even an organized administration like Obama's took you know two years to roll out the pivot or rebalance. You know I'm not surprised that that administration is not there. And as Lee Sin Long like hinted when he was here at CFR and he gave an address, he was like you know essentially you know now may not be the time for really am ambitious initiatives for the Trump administration to do in terms of trade. It might just be a time for all of us to take a deep breath and sort of sort out things before we aim for grander objectives and initiatives. And I think that's something worth keeping in mind too. Um, as folks think about, you know, do we want the Trump administration to unveil their big Asia strategy? Are you going to actually like what you see? Um, because I, I'm not sure that that's the case so far. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I guess to end maybe this on a note of optimism for folks who may be a little worried about the United States falling off a cliff in Asia. I mean, there is, again, uh, you know, we talk a lot about the rise of China and, you know, Xi Jinping's power consolidation. But it's again, it's far from assured that China... Um, is is so competent and so excellent at foreign policy that will you know that it will manage to outplay the United States at every turn. Uh, there is plenty that China can do on its own accord to undermine its own interests in Asia, just as the United States might be doing to itself. So really, at the end of the day, it's uh, it's still an open question, uh, you know, where where things are headed in Asia. And look, I mean, a lot of this uh, diplomacy and strategic stuff in Asia is is quite difficult, as I think the Obama administration found out uh, amply, uh, certainly between uh, 2014 and 2016. Yeah, um, and it, it, it also is the case that you do find that, you know, at least in the recent administrations, U.S. policy on China does tend to start out soft at first, but does get progressively harder over time. Absolutely. So uh, that's definitely something that we could see if the Chinese try to, you know, she's 
mentioned at the Party Congress, consolidating China's role in the world. If that's going to include South China Sea and Taiwan, you, you can be sure that the United States will be responding to that as well. So, Absolutely. Well, Prashant, I really enjoyed that conversation. Thanks for joining me. Yep. Good to be with you. Great. And uh, for listeners, uh, just a note, this will be the last podcast for a few weeks because I will actually be on vacation in uh, in South Asia. And hopefully I'll have some impressions from that trip when I uh, come back. Um, but uh, expect the next podcast to uh, come out sometime in early December. In the meantime, if you haven't subscribed, please do so so you can keep up with that future episode when it comes out in a while. And uh, if you have been subscribed, but you haven't left us a review yet on iTunes, please do so. It really helps get the name out of the show. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.